Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much. Crystal and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's workshop, Treatment Update with the, for Adults Living with Acute Lymphocytic Leukemia, or ALL. Uh, today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations, um, many other cancer organizations as well as leukemia organizations as well. And um, today's uh, program really has a number of participants. We have over 450 participants on the call today. And you come from all over the United States, from all different regions, from both urban, rural, and suburban areas. And we have international participants from Canada, Colombia, Portugal, and United Kingdom. So a bit of a global call as well. And today's uh, uh, program is supported by Jazz Pharmaceuticals, Inc., and I really want to thank them for their support of this program. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Alexander Pearl. Dr. Pearl is Associate Professor of Medicine, Leukemia Program, Division of Hematology and Oncology, Perelman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. And Dr. Pearl is going to address an overview of ALL in adults, current standard of care, the role of minimal residual disease monitoring, and communicating with the healthcare team about quality of life concerns. It's now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Pearl. Thanks, Carolyn. Um, so I will uh, try to cover all of those areas in, in a short period of time, and uh, hopefully if, if, if anything gets missed, we can come back to it in the Q&A session at the end. Um, so in order to provide a, a, an overview of ALL, um, acute lymphoblastic leukemia, um, I would just start by saying that this is a, a relatively uncommon cancer of blood-growing cells. There are perhaps about six or 7,000 new cases every year in the U.S. that are diagnosed. And while we have a worldwide audience, uh, it's hard to put those into global numbers. I don't have those in front of me, but it's relatively uncommon amongst adults. By contrast, uh, ALL is actually the most common pediatric cancer, and so it's sort of a specialty of pediatric uh, hematologists, oncologists, but it may be something that in the adult world we see less commonly than other diseases. There's probably only about 2,500 to 3,000 cases of adult ALL every year. Um, now, it, it is an acute leukemia and not a chronic leukemia is one distinction I would make, meaning that the symptoms can come pretty much without warning and without any uh, uh, sense that anything is wrong until suddenly the disease is showing up in full form. And patients usually complain of symptoms that are related to one of two things. The, the first is that the, the diseased cells grow in the bone marrow, which is where this is a disease of uh, blood-making cells. Um, the bone marrow gives rise to all of the blood cells that populate the the, the blood and the uh, immune system, and so it gives rise to red blood cells, white blood cells, and platelets. And when this disease is active, all of those numbers of cells go down, and they're replaced instead by variable numbers in the blood, but usually large numbers in the bone marrow of very immature cells that aren't 
structurally func or really not functionally specialized to do the work of the blood, meaning the white blood cells are designed to fight off infections, the red blood cells are designed to carry oxygen to all of our organs, and the platelets help clot the blood. And when leukemia is active, we, we don't have any of those functions uh, left, and so the, the function of the blood is lost and patients lose all of the things that they don't even realize their blood is doing for them on a daily basis. So they are very prone to infections, they can be quite tired, and they can have unprovoked bleeding or bruising um, that happens, and that's usually what brings people to uh, uh, the doctor. Another thing that people can have symptoms of is that the, the cells can grow in the bone marrow in an uncomfortable way called bone pain, or, or they can have uh, uh, pain or swelling in their joints, and sometimes have enlargement of their lymph nodes. So they may come in Know, complaining of a lump under their arm or in their groin or in their neck, and that may be expansion of those um, areas where normally we see lymphocytes fight off infections, and that's just the, the tumor cells growing. So in terms of clinical presentation, that's usually what we see over just a matter of weeks in some patients, um, but rarely more than a couple of months. Um, that's in contrast to chronic leukemias, which can be present for quite some time without a lot of symptoms, um, but similar can, can have abnormalities in terms of the number of blood cells we see. And we can see the diseased cells in the blood, so sometimes this is an easy diagnosis to make just by looking at the blood counts and then the blood under the microscope. And when we look under the microscope, what we see are the cells that should be uh, uh, growing to become ultimately white blood cells to fight infection. But instead of growing to that specialized function, they're stuck in a really immature and dysfunctional state called a blast cell. And a blast cell is a cell that's capable of making another cell. So these cells actually divide uh, and make copies of themselves that unfortunately are stuck in that immature state. So they're really good at making more of themselves. They're just not very good at doing anything useful for your body. And that's the problem with this disease is that patients lose the function of their blood um, and then they, they, they get repopulation of the bone marrow with these immature diseased cells um, that, that are really the core of the disease. The way that it's treated is we use chemotherapy to kill off the cells that are dividing. Um, and actually, ALL really has been the poster child for the development of chemotherapy in the field of oncology. Um, if we look back about 50 years, the first studies done to show that chemotherapy was effective for any kind of cancer were done in a small number of diseases, and ALL was really one of the few that was showing dramatic progress and real you know, promise of chemotherapy, where for the first time, patients who really prior to that had not had any effective therapy, were going into remission with great regularity. And over many years and many clinical trials, we've optimized the therapeutic approach so that more and more patients see benefit. And ultimately, we cure a great number of patients with this disease. So there's no surgical therapy for this kind of cancer. Uh, we don't have a surgeon come in to remove the diseased bone marrow in the way that you might remove a tumor. Uh, if you had breast cancer or lung cancer um, or colon cancer, prostate cancer, we, we, we don't use any of that. And for the same reason, we don't stage the disease the way you would stage those uh, cancers. Instead, we just say that the disease is active and we can see it or it's in remission and we can't. Um, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit later on about some methods that we're using to define whether leukemia is present and active or not using even more sensitive uh, tools than a microscope. So the cause of this disease is something I get asked a lot by patients, which is why do I have this leukemia? Where did this come from? Is there something I did that put me at risk? And am I going to pass this along to my kids? Um, we, we know that the cause of leukemia is in terms of what's diseased in the cells, are due to mutations, which are basically mistakes in the process of making DNA in the, in the course of making a new cell. Um, and those mutations stay within the cell and stay in all the cells that are, are ultimately divided out of that cell and its daughter cells. 
Um, and why those mutations happen kind of varies from person to person, but more often than not happens for no good reason other than chance. Uh, a very small number of mutations are required to cause ALL, and if we think about the number of blood cells we make on a daily basis, it's actually hundreds of billions of cells on a daily basis, and it's not all that uncommon that mutations can occur. Now, normally, the body weeds that process out by repairing the DNA if it's damaged, but something can go wrong where those mutations can stick, um, and there's an inherent error process that means that some mutations will actually persist. And if they're just randomly scattered along the genome, it's usually not a problem. But if they happen in very specific places, they can actually change the function of these cells, particularly if these happen in blood cells that are very long-lived to start with. Um, and so we think that's really what happens is it's a mutation in a very long-lived cell that may actually make it more prone to making more copies of itself or less likely to uh, functionally change into a specialized cell and it directs its what we call differentiation or specialization towards the lymphoid group of cells, and that's why this ultimately uh, leads to cells that look like they're trying to become white blood cells, but actually they don't gain the function of white blood cells. Um, the mutations are increased uh, by prior exposure to chemotherapy. So if we look at people who've had prior chemotherapy, there's a small increase in the risk of ALL, but that's not the majority of patients that we see. The same is true for radiation done for either other cancers um, or just in general radiation exposure. If we look at people who survived the atomic uh, bomb attack on Japan, there was a higher risk of ALL in those patients. Uh, sorry, in, the, in the, that population that led to many patients with various different kinds of leukemia, including ALL. But most people don't have that kind of an exposure history. And we don't have a good explanation for why most people wind up with ALL. It's only a small number of people that we can point to. And the flip side to that is that we can say with pretty good confidence that the mutations that cause this disease seem to happen after you're born. Um, and are not going to be something that's passed along in your, in your genes to your kids. So if you're worried about this disease affecting other family members, first off, we usually can spot that pretty quickly in the rare cases where there's a family history of ALL. And then secondly, there's really not a risk of you passing this along to anyone else. There are different subtypes of ALL, and that's important for treatment. Uh, the, the two major subtypes are what are called uh, T precursor cells and B precursor cells. Um, which just mean immature cells that ultimately are trying to become uh, the class of uh, lymphoid cells called T cells or the class of lymphoid cells called B cells. And these are important cells for either regulating and directing immune attacks uh, kind of at a master level. That's what the T cells do. Or the B cells actually make antibodies that help fight off infections. Um, and so uh, in ALL, we can see cells that have already kind of committed to trying to become a T cell or a B cell, but they don't quite make it all the way. And they certainly don't have the function of a T cell or a B cell. For example, they don't make antibodies and they don't direct immune attack. Um, what's important about this is we actually do have some medications and some therapies that can be directed against B cell uh, ALL, but we don't yet have therapies that are specific for their attack against T cell, though some of the drugs are actually more active in T cells. So we can sort of design our therapy based on T versus B, but the general principles are very similar. A more important question in terms of adding medications that are targeting the leukemia cells is whether patients have a particular mutation that's seen in about a quarter of adults with ALL, and that's called the Philadelphia chromosome, or we call that PH positive for short, uh, Philly positive for short. Uh, Philadelphia chromosome refers to an abnormal appearance of actually two chromosomes that fuse together in a process called a translocation. This is just short uh, uh, 
fancy term for a mutation that can occur at the chromosome level within the DNA. What happens because of that chromosome abnormality is it makes a new gene that's only present in the leukemia cell, and it drives the growth of the leukemia cell by activating an enzyme called BCR-ABL. What's important about that is we can use the presence of the Philadelphia chromosome to first off uh, diagnose this particular subtype because we can see it under the microscope. And second off, we have drugs that inhibit that enzyme, what are called tyrosine kinase inhibitors. So the tyrosine kinase inhibitors are a very important part of therapy for pH-positive ALL. Um, and because they are very specific for their effect on that enzyme, and that enzyme is only activated in patients who have pH-positive ALL, they really don't have any other uh, use in, in patients who don't have pH-positive ALL. There's a recently recognized subgroup of patients that may respond to these kinds of therapies, but that's actually pretty early on in the process of defining therapy for them. We call those patients pH-like. Um, there is another subgroup of patients that have, uh, a, again, a, a, a fusion of chromosomes that affects a gene called MLL. We don't have a specific therapy for those patients, but we do know that those patients may benefit from a more aggressive approach, and often we refer those patients for bone marrow transplant uh, because we think there may be better outcomes in that group. Okay, so that covers the subtypes of ALL. Uh, with respect to treatment for ALL, as I said at the onset, the, the standard of care is chemotherapy. This disease is, for, for many reasons, the poster child for the uh, effectiveness of multi-agent chemotherapy to treat cancer. Um, and, and in our field of hematology oncology, again, several decades ago when we tried to figure out how best to treat patients with chemotherapy and what diseases were more or less responsive, we were uh, very impressed by the responsiveness of ALL2 almost any chemotherapeutic, and the fact that more than one chemotherapy drug given at a time seemed to work far better than a single chemotherapy drug, even at very high doses. So all the regimens are going to use more than one agent, not a single agent of treatment. Um, with the possible exception of some patients who can really benefit from, again, the tyrosine kinase inhibitors for pH-positive disease if they're not good candidates to get uh, additional chemotherapy, and that's uncommon. Um, we use a multi-agent approach. We rotate which drugs we give. Usually we're giving at least two or three agents at a time. And we may give those drugs for a month of treatment with some drugs being given daily, some drugs being given weekly, and some drugs being given every few weeks or once a month. Uh, it sort of depends on the medicine that we're uh, prescribing for the patient to maximize the likelihood that their treatment can be given at full intensity and on a schedule because it's very important that we do that in order to maximize treat treatment outcomes. And, and the measure of that is whether patients enter remission. Remission here means we look at the bone marrow, so again, the same organ that's diseased at the start of therapy, and instead of seeing that it's filled up with the leukemia cells, we see normal cells have grown back. There's a clearance of the bone marrow uh, from the leukemic blasts, which were the tumor cells, and instead we see that normal cells are in the bone marrow again. Um, and it can take very little chemotherapy to do that. Even just uh, perhaps a week or two of chemotherapy may be enough for a patient to enter remission. And if we look across the board, the vast majority of patients do enter a complete remission, meaning a very good quality remission where we don't see any signs of the disease. And we can say that their disease is stabilized. But that, importantly, is not the same as curing the disease because we have to continue giving therapy to patients in remission if we want to have hope of disease control for the long run. And so the long run is a, a very, very challenging thing with ALL because we see the best treatment outcomes not with short courses of highly intensive therapy, but very long treatment courses. 
Um, and when I say long, I mean it's not uncommon that we will treat patients intensively with, again, multi-agent chemotherapy given, as I've just described, for six or eight months. And then after that, it's typical that we will reduce the intensity of the therapy for another two to three years. And that's a fairly standard treatment approach for ALL. There's some variations on that theme that can be entertained. Some patients do go on to bone marrow transplant, which means they have a shorter course, but that also has a significant amount of treatment challenges and complications. Um, and it's probably a minority of patients with adult ALL that we're transplanting these days, but there are some that really do benefit, and so we do recommend that. Um, as I said before, the first six to eight months are really the most intensive part, and in particular, it's sort of bookended therapy. The very beginning of that six to eight-month period and the very end of that six to eight-month period are the kind of most challenging for the patients, have the highest likelihood of complications, and we'll typically do that first month in the hospital with you know, watching the patient, you know, seven days a week, not sending them home because the supportive care can be really extreme. And from a safety standpoint, we feel that that's best for the patient. That's not universally done depending on what kind of follow-up can be arranged, um, but it varies from center to center. At our center, we, we will typically hospitalize patients for a month, and it's not uncommon that patients have to be rehospitalized. Importantly, in addition to chemotherapy that's given either by pill or IV, all patients get uh, therapy into the spinal fluid because that's been shown to lower the, uh, the complication rate of ALL, in particular leukemia growing in spinal fluid, which in the past had been a major problem, and now we much less commonly see. Uh, and again, that's needed to be done quite regularly. It may be that patients need a weekly treatment for a month or so, um, and sometimes more than once a week. And then eventually it's given less frequently. And patients in the maintenance phase may only get their intrathecal therapy about once every three months. Um, I will briefly mention that we are getting better at defining what patients are having the best responses to therapy. Um, this is an approach that was developed in pediatrics where they looked with a very sensitive test called uh, measurable residual disease flow cytometry. That has become standard in pediatrics and it has moved to the adult world, so it's now standard in the ALL world and the adults too. Um, and that's actually how we define whether patients are seeing optimal response and less likely are we going to define that just based on a microscope. I want to move to some of the side effects of therapy and comment on some of the uh, quality of life issues that we deal with. Um, one is, is related to the fact that we often treat patients with uh, corticosteroids, a medicine called prednisone or dexamethasone, and that can actually have a fair number of side effects. Um, it can increase your risk of infections. It can cause very high blood sugar. You may need insulin to manage that. It can elevate blood pressure and cause weight gain or fluid retention. Patients can have weakness of their muscles. It can make you irritable and have insomnia or cause mood swings. And there is a small but real risk that it can cause abnormal blood flow to the bones and actually infarctions of the bones that can affect, uh, cause serious pain and actually affect bone, bone uh, uh, strength. So some patients actually do need to go on either pain medicines for that or even get surgery for that to stabilize the bones. Um, there are a number of ways that we can help patients getting steroids. Um, one of the things I try to emphasize for my patients is it's really important to eat right. If you're prone to high blood sugar, really be attentive with insulin if that's an issue for you. Um, we do have uh, exercise programs for our patients to make sure they're not getting muscle weakness. 
and insomnia I often wind up having to treat. I warn their their family and caregivers about the mood swings, which are fairly common, um, just so everybody understands it's the medications, often not not the patient who's feeling this way. I, I would say it's really important that patients getting therapy don't live in a bubble from infectious risk. They really shouldn't have sick patients visit them, but you shouldn't feel like you can't live your life because you're getting ALL therapy. And importantly, while the first six to eight months can be really hard, Again, once you get to maintenance therapy, that's usually when things start getting a lot better. Patients' hair starts growing back. They generally start feeling better. Their energy is much better. And most of my patients go back to work then. So I actually ask my patients to kind of make a bucket list of the things that are really important and try to do as many things that they can within reason uh, to stay you know, on track for the things that are important in their lives while they're getting therapy so they don't feel their entire lives have to go on hold just because they're getting really hard therapy. Um, and then lastly, rely on your uh, care provider and your, the team that's, that's looking after you to give you tips for success as you go along. If something doesn't feel right, um, be a squeaky wheel. Let them know, and they can often help. And that concludes my comments now, so I'm going to pass the microphone back to, to Dr. Messner, uh, and I thank for the opportunity to speak. Well, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Pearl. That was really excellent. Uh, very wonderful, outstanding uh, introduction to the whole call, setting the stage, and uh, lots of intonation. And our next speaker um, is Dr. Raul Tibbis. Dr. Tibbis is Director, Clinical Leukemia Program, Laura and Isaac Perlmutter Cancer Center, Associate Professor, NYU School of Medicine, Scholar in Clinical Research, Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, NYU Langone Health. And Dr. Tibbis is going to address therapy for relapsed refractory ALL, managing complications and side effects, new approaches and targeted therapy and clinical trial updates. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Tibus. Well, Caroline and Alexander, thank you so much for, for the introduction. And um, <clears throat> it is, as always, a pleasure to be on the call. And um, I think it's hugely important to inform and educate the patients, which is you, about the treatments, the current treatments, the promising treatments um, about their disease. So it was a wonderful introduction uh, from my colleague, and I will talk about first about uh, therapy for relapse and refractory ALL. So hopefully the first-line treatment will work for most patients. Um, unfortunately, it does not work for all patients, and what do we do um, when a patient with ALL relapses? That depends on when the relapse occurs. Does it occur early in the disease, <clears throat> or while the patient is even on treatment during the first couple of months, or does it um, occur after stem cell transplantation, or does it occur towards the end of the maintenance therapy? So those are the different scenarios. So if a patient is on treatment currently for their ALL and during the first couple of months the disease comes back or breaks through the treatments, <clears throat> what we often do, we go these days, or we could give the patient more chemotherapy. However, over the last couple of uh, years, several antibody-based therapies were approved. An antibody is a protein that can bind to other proteins on cells. And what have scientists found over the last couple of years is um, they know what the protein structure and landscape of leukemia cells is. And two of those important ones are CD19 and CD22. So an antibody, you know, um, is able to fight infections or is attached to, to foreign proteins or to proteins in general. So these antibody-based therapies, there's one which is called Blina-Tumumab, which is called a bispecific antibody. What does bispecific mean? So um, as an antibody, there's one arm 
<clears throat> attaches to a protein on the leukemia cells, which is called CD19. And the other arm of the antibody attaches to T cells or immune cells. So it's a way of bringing um, T cells, immune cells, very close to the leukemia cells um, through this antibody, through the hook on both cells. And then the immune cells can start attacking the leukemia cells. So it's an immune therapy. It has been very effective, and it was the first of its kind. It's called the bispecific antibody, bi for two. So it's two arms um, recognizing cancer or leukemia cells as well as the immune cells and bring them together. And that therapy is very effective um, in relapse refractory patients and uh, equally and more effective than chemotherapy. So a lot of the physicians have gone away for using a second or third line of chemotherapy, but rather using an antibody-based treatment. So blinatumumab, as I mentioned, is very effective, or blincido is the trade name, and we use it routinely for our patients who progress on treatment or where the disease comes back. Um, the other uh, new antibody-based treatment that has been approved recently for relapse and refractory BALL, so B-cell ALL, is inotuzumab. That's an antibody that carries a um, chemotherapy bound to it. And that antibody recognizes a protein on leukemia cells, which is called CD22. So this inotuzumab drug now binds to the CD22 protein on leukemia cells, it's being taken up by those cells, and the chemotherapy payload that's closely attached to the antibody is being released inside the leukemia cells. That's another very effective way of, it's a targeted therapy, both by recognizing this protein on the leukemia cells and then, like a Trojan horse, bringing the chemotherapy right into the leukemia cells. And very high response rates in second, first, but also second and third salvage therapy are seen. Um, with this treatment as well. And I should mention for any kind of therapy, including those two antibodies that are now FDA approved, what I mentioned is it's important to what we call MRD negativity. So eradicating and getting rid of all or most or all of the measurable leukemia cells that we can measure and detect by our current tests. So because it has been shown if you're MRD negative, the this essentially means that the response is deeper, so meaning getting rid of almost all the leukemia cells that we can detect and measure. And that correlates and has to do with a better response and a better long-term response. So achieving a very deep response is possible. What's also possible and is very important for most patients with relapse and refractory ALL, we try to go to an allogeneic stem cell transplantation if this was not already part of the treatment for the first treatment attempt or approach around. Because we know those therapies, they're great, they're excellent, but patients still relapse. The disease still comes back even after an initial response. So an allogeneic stem cell transplantation is still a choice um, we would like to get to if we can. In order to go or come to stem cell transplantation, we need to get rid of the disease a second time around. And here's where those antibody-based therapies, but also chemotherapy can help us. And importantly, um, we can bring many patients to a potentially curative stem cell transplantation after salvage therapy with the new antibody-based treatments, as well as with some uh, chemotherapy regimen that we still have available and sometimes use as well. 
And there are several other targets um, currently in development um, for those antibody-based treatments. Uh, another, another big um, news last year was the approval of the first CAR T-cell treatment for B-cell ALL for pediatric patients and adult patients up to the age of 25. So what is a CAR T-cell therapy? It's an immune therapy. And most of you heard about it, have read it, made a big splash, and it's really a breakthrough in, in modern cancer treatment. And um, so what that is essentially, it's an immune therapy where a patient's own T-cells are being taken out of the body, they're being collected through a machine, then they're being brought into the laboratory, and in the laboratory, they're transfected, meaning their special receptors and proteins are being brought into those um, immune cells, T cells of the patient. Then they're grown in the laboratory for a couple of weeks, and they're, in a way, they're being made ready to attack the leukemia cells because they're transfected with a structure that enables them to recognize the leukemia cells, which is, again, the CD19. And they also get a couple of other modifications that makes them sharp and ready to detect leukemia cells. So what you have now is, a, is an immune therapy. It's a patient's own immune cell that is being equipped with an anti-chimeric uh, antigen receptor, that's how it's called, that is able to recognize the leukemic cells. So now those immune cells can go to the leukemic cells, and they also carry something inside them that scientists were able to activate so they can activate the immune cell uh, response against those leukemic cells. And some say it's a living cancer treatment because that response and that treatment can go on for many months and maybe even up to a year or two years. So those patients' own immune cells persist and can continuously attack the treatment. There are side effects to all of the treatments I just mentioned. We know the side effects with conventional chemotherapy, which is myelosuppression, which means low blood counts. Patients can have some nausea, some vomiting, which these days is usually controlled, some hair loss, and so forth, some diarrhea. With the new immune system therapies and the antibody-based treatments, we see a little different side effect profile for the patients. So what is that? With blinatumumab, which is the bispecific antibody, bringing um, immune cells close to leukemia cells, what we see is called a cytokine release syndrome. So essentially, the activation of the immune cells close to leukemia cells leads to secretion of a lot of cytokines. And that resembles, in a way, an infection or flu-like um, syndrome where patients can get fever, they can get chills, the blood pressure can drop, they can go into shock or something like resembles in shock, as well as they can suffer neurological side effects. Um, they can become tired, they become, um, <clears throat> can, in the extreme, can become unresponsive, and a few percent of the patients can actually develop seizures um, in the clinical studies and also in, in, in patients. It's not many patients, but this is something we see. Therefore, we slowly increase the dose of blinatumumab during the first week, and uh, patients need to stay in the hospital for seven to nine days or up to nine days initially before we can send them home. And so we slowly need to increase the dose of the medication, and then usually we have learned pretty well how to manage those side effects. And the moment we see that the patient is not doing so well, uh, we can stop, interrupt, or reduce the dose. 
Um, of course, we can also see low blood counts, but not to the same degree as we see with um, conventional chemotherapy uh, combinations. With enotuzumab, we also see similar side effects um, with um, we can see some uh, lowering of the blood counts and so forth, some transfusion reactions, but there's one toxicity that's, uh, f that physicians carefully need to follow, which is um, a side effect on the liver. So the liver can take a hit uh, when patients are being treated with inutuzumab, this, this CD22 um, antibody that has a chemotherapy payload, how we call it. Um, and again, uh, physicians who have used those medications will carefully monitor and follow the patient and look for those side effects we know of. For the CAR T-cell therapy, since this is an immune therapy, it's a modified immune cell, we have to be careful to control the immune cell that it doesn't spiral out of control. So uh, cytokine release syndrome Similarly, presents with fevers, uh, patients can go into shock, um, they can go into uh, respiratory, meaning lung failure, um, and so forth. So those are therapies that are very effective, they have different side effects, and they can or should only be given in centers that are experienced with those treatments as well as managing those potential side effects. I'm not saying it happens in every patient, but I'm saying those are some of the complications. And then, of course, complications of the treatment in general is low blood counts, which puts the patient at risk of infection. So the white blood cells or the ANC, which is the absolute neutrophil count, those are the functioning and infection-fighting white cells. That's a fraction of those white cells. If it's too low and... Um, we give the patient prophylactic antibiotics. We can give them a prophylactic antiviral medication. They don't suffer or get a viral infection. And um, over time with treatment, there's also increasing risk for fungal infections. So sometimes you put the patient on treatment or prophylaxis for fungal infections as well. And then we do see um, liver toxicity. So some of our therapies can damage the liver, so we carefully need to, to follow up with blood tests for the liver as well, and sometimes need to adjust or um, reduce the dosage. What about um, new approaches and targeted treatments? So the three therapies I mentioned right now and I was focusing on so far, not even half a year, a year, two years ago, those were targeted on novel therapies or new approaches. So you can see that within a very short period of time now, um, more and more treatments are being approved, fortunately, something we didn't have available three or four years ago. Um, and there are other medications and other therapies currently being explored and being developed for patients. Um, which I, for the purpose of this call, will not go into detail um, today. Maybe I should say one thing is for what my, my colleague mentioned, um, uh, Philadelphia chromosome-positive ALL or pH-positive ALL, which occurs roughly in a third of the adult patients, um, we give the uh, B-cerebral-specific tyrosine kinase inhibitors as part of the treatment, as part of the chemotherapy treatment. And um, this is, for example, that's uh, desatinib or nilotinib or imatinib. The others as well, like ponatinib. There are some new developments. So there's a um, drug called ABL001 or 
Asimimip, Asimimip, which is in a development and um, for uh, pH positive diseases as well. And there are several other treatments and, and um, novel approaches being uh, developed um, right now as well. And um, there are other CAR T cell targets, there are other antibody targets, or I mean other other protein targets on leukemic cells that are antibodies being developed for. Um, we working, or scientists, clinicians working on um, targeting death pathways in cancer cells, for example, with venetoclax um, or navidoclax. Those try to target um, proteins that the cancer cells increase in order to defend and ward off a death signal that this treatment um, puts on the cancer cells, so um, trying to to um, fight um, the, the effects of the chemotherapy this way. And as opposed to going into more details and telling you about everything that's being developed, I'd rather stop here and rather have more discussions and open up to questions, first to Carol, bringing it back to Caroline, and then rather be available for, for the question answering session. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Titus. That was really outstanding and really so much information. And I think um, I know there are lots of questions um, that we have our audience is thinking about and, and going to ask. There are some that have been queued up already. And so um, uh, we will take questions. I'm just going to say a few words about Cancer Care Services, and then we're going to move right on to taking questions. So everyone, just get your questions in order, um, and uh, we'll be. Um, you can post them online, or you can queue up and ask your questions and the operator will tell you how to do that in just a minute. So Cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization, and we provide uh, what we call psychosocial services and programs. And what does that mean? So we have a staff of over 25 oncology social workers who are specially trained social workers who only, with master's level, who only work with people who have um, cancer or hematologic cancers and um, provide services to all ages, from children to teens, to young adults, to middle-aged people, to older adults, um, to the whole spectrum of people, and to their families, loved ones, caregivers, partners, so everyone is um, able to get services from Cancer Care. Um, we have an 800 number, 1-800-813-4673, and a website, www.cancercare.org. We also do provide some really basic services that people find very helpful in addition to the counseling. We do offer financial assistance, both in, from our basic cancer care financial assistance program, which is available nationally, as well as a copay foundation. So those are different buckets of getting funds from cancer care. So when in doubt, call us. If for some reason we don't have the funds for you, we definitely will be able to refer you to places that do. But but I would say go ahead and call because the staff really, they have an extensive database to figure out where, where all where we can send you to for getting additional services if you need them. Um, we also do these workshops. We do lots of them per year, um, and so that's another service that you can get. And um, in addition, we um, often from the programs, we do have publications um, or fact sheets that you can access, so lots of information that you can get from our website, or you can call our staff. We'll send them to you, the booklets or the fact sheets. 
Um, and so that's a whole array of the services, and you can call for one thing only, like I just need transportation for my treatment, um, and we will assist with that. You don't have to use everything, and you also can call and say, I want everything. So it's really, um, you know, whatever it is that would help you. And I want to say that we also have a, um, a children's program for children who are really, there are some children we help who have cancer, but many children who actually are impacted by cancer in their families. So that, and just about every adult, there's a child somewhere in the picture there, or a teen, or a young adult, and so um, we do offer services for them. And we do have all types of support groups, both on the telephone, online, um, and actually um, in our offices as well. And um, the online groups, I have to say, are the most, um, the largest growing group that we have. I think we have now 138 different types of online support groups for different types of cancers or hematologic cancers for different populations of people, both um, uh, adults and um, caregivers and um, people who are affected by cancer. So, you know, the entire, everything you could imagine, we have an online support group for that. And that you can get right off of our website or just call our 800 number and our staff will help you with that as well. So that's a thumbnail sketch of all the services we have to offer. And now we are going to take your questions. So now... Um, I think people have been, been queuing up, and so I'm going to ask uh, Crystal to explain how to queue up for questions, and we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. Crystal? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And again, ladies and gentlemen, to ask a question, please press star and then one. So I have a question for our online participants, and I'm going to start with giving this question to um, Dr. Pearl. Um, my husband is not planning to have a transplant at the moment. Should we look for a donor in case he needs a transplant in the future? Could you address that in a general way to help everyone think that through? I, I think I think in general it's not a bad idea to initiate uh, a, a donor search, particularly within the family. Um, and by that I mean to look for siblings who might match. Those are usually our first choice for a transplant donor. Uh, but these days, actually, there are there are a number of different ways that we can do transplants, even if you don't have a sibling. Or I have patients who are who are orphans, and uh, they may not know their family. Um, they may have children who could be a donor uh, who may share only half of their genes. Um, they may have a parent who may share half of their genes. Um, and the the amount of matching from donor to recipient used to be really restricted to people who had an identical genotype for uh, the tissue typing. Um, by this, I don't mean blood typing. I'm not talking about blood type A, B, O, or AB. Um, this is actually a more sophisticated way of looking for compatibility of the immune systems that can be supported through transplant. And it used to be that we needed a very tight match there. These days, we're, we're less commonly requiring such a close match because we're able to use different kinds of transplants that are more tolerant of those mismatches. So there's a little bit less of an urgency to have that kind of in your back pocket now just in case you need it. But it doesn't hurt to know it. Um, so if you had siblings and they wanted to know, you know, could I serve as a bone marrow donor or if that would help make a question of should we go to transplant or not, it's not a bad idea to at least do that kind of type. But we, we won't typically do an extensive search for a donor anymore just because you have a diagnosis of ALL and you're responding appropriately. If you have a less than optimal response, and certainly if you relapse for the, the reasons that uh, Dr. Tebas uh, had mentioned before, I think it's very important to know what your donor options are because if you 
respond to therapy after a relapse or or uh uh you know the 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 treatments to start working um after having not previously worked um then that puts you in a really different position and you can capitalize on that opportunity uh to go ahead to a transplant and that that can provide therapy above and beyond what chemotherapy alone can do Thank you. Um, and a question for Dr. Titus. Um, how is ALL in older people different from those who are children or still younger? That's a question for me? Yes. Um, so it's how, um, so how is ALL in older people different from those who are younger, including children? Yeah, that's a very good question. There are a couple of things. So one thing is that we see a little different what we call cytogenetics, and uh, so essentially the molecular distribution of leukemia is a little, little different in, in pediatric patients. So we see less of this what we call the pH-positive or Philadelphia-chromosome-positive ALL in children, and we see more in adult patients. So that's one difference. Um, and this pH-positive ALL often... It's a little more difficult to treat and um, often more resistant to chemotherapy despite the new BCR-ABLE or this Philadelphia chromosome inhibitory oral drugs that we have available. Um, there are also other genetic changes in adult leukemia than in, in pediatric or young adult leukemia. And we don't know all of those changes. It's not just biological. You can say about 40 or 50. It's different. Um, it, it is, we're learning more what is different. We know there's a different distribution of leukemia subtypes, genetically and molecularly defined. Um, older patients are also less able and less well able to handle the chemotherapy we are giving. So a child or even a young adult or a teenager is much more able to withstand all the treatment we are giving. And we also use different medications in the pediatric pop, uh, protocols um, than in the adult protocols. And this is not we don't want them. This is not because we don't want to give them to adult patients because that some of them are not as well tolerated or not as well tolerated at the higher dosages. So there's also a, a therapeutic difference um, that, or we can give more intensive therapy and higher dosages of certain drugs, particular PEC asparaginase or asparaginase in general, that is a drug that depletes an amino acid that leukemia cells need to grow. And um, so what has been done over the last couple of years, talking about adults, so there's a different range. There's young adults, um, adolescents, which is anywhere from 16, 18 to um, 35 or 40, depending on which cancer doctor group has studied them. Um, so now we're using in the patient population between 18 and 20 up to the age of 35, 40, sometimes 45 years of age, we're using more and more therapies and combinations that we're lending and that are closer to the truly pediatric um, therapies we use in small children of a couple of years of age. And with those pediatric-inspired or pediatric-modeled protocols, we're also seeing higher response rates, deeper responses, as well as we are sending less um, of the younger adults um, to, to a transplant. If we give the same therapies to a patient who is 65 or 75, they're generally not able to handle them so well. So 
what's being done there, what's being done there is all of those treatments I told you, like the antibodies particularly, we include these antibodies now in the upfront treatment and sequence them or decrease the dose of the chemotherapy and add an antibody um, to this treatment because they work so well in, 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 in the relapse refractory settings. So now we're also using those antibodies um, together with chemotherapy, lower dose chemotherapy, differently sequence those drugs together in the older patient populations. And so far, this seems to do quite well, and actually we can probably increase our responses, and um, also I think we will make some improvement there as well for the older patients, 60, 70, with ALL. Um, what we're using for Philadelphia pH-positive ALL patients, there are some treatments where we just give them one of those um, BCR-able-specific tyrosine kinase inhibitors, like the satinib, and we add some steroids for a month or so. And those patients can also have a very good response that is not lasting forever, but that can last um, you know, quite for, for, for a good time, and maybe even years or a few years. And if a patient is super fit and older, um, we can also send them to a stem cell transplantation. So if you're older, you're fit, you have um, a good social support group, you are in remission, you have a matched donor, it could be a sibling, could be an unrelated donor that matches the immune type, we still send those patients for stem cell transplantation that can also be an effective treatment and a possible cure for those treatments. Excellent. Wow. Thank you very much. That's very, that's very helpful and, and very informative. Thank you. Um, and we have um, another question that's come in for Dr. Um, one of our online participants, for Dr. Pearl. Um, I'm so tired on my maintenance treatment that I am in bed all day. Is there anything I can do to feel less drained? Um, and how long does it last? So if you could answer this in a general way in terms of fatigue in general and, and the um, experience in terms of treatment, uh, possible treatment side effects. So it, it's tricky to answer something like that without knowing a little bit more about the situation um, because it could be that this is, you know, a, a bigger side effect of the, the treatment that happened early in course. It could be that you're still recovering from the actually the intensive portion and it's early in maintenance. Um, and remember, maintenance can, can, can last for several years. For, for female patients, we may continue it for two years, and for male patients, for three years. Uh, but maintenance therapy is, is a combination of, of usually four drugs. Uh, one is a steroid, uh, so prednisone is the most commonly used one. Uh, one is vincristine, uh, which is usually given just one dose per month. Uh, the third drug is called methotrexate, which is given once a week, uh, and is a, a uh, one one day out of the week, you take probably about a dozen pills, um, and then the uh, last drug is called 6MP or mercaptopurine, and that's given every day, usually at bedtime. Um, so, in terms of fatigue, there can still be patients who have anemia, but that usually does tend to get better in maintenance. But it can take several months before it really gets better. And there are patients who are very sensitive to the effects of, especially 6MP, who can have really big drops in their blood counts, and that needs to be monitored very closely. With adjustments in the doses of maintenance drugs, we can often make that more tolerable. Something I mentioned early in, in the in the you know kind of prepared marks that I, I mentioned is that you can get muscle weakness from the steroids. So I do recommend that my patients do exercise when they're on, especially when they're on maintenance, to maintain their quad muscle strength, to make sure they're walking, to make sure they've got their exercise, uh, uh, getting them up and out of bed. But but 
a, a few other things I wanted to point out that can contribute here. One is um, people can pick up infections when they're in maintenance, and it's important to make sure that's not a contributor. In particular, we can see certain rare lung infections, something called pneumocystis, which I have seen even during maintenance therapy. Uh, it's important to be on medicines to prevent that all throughout therapy for ALL, not just in the intensive portions, because we can see that actually in maintenance. Um, making sure you don't have another medical condition that you've picked up because of prior therapy. Uh, patients do get a drug called uh, donorubicin or doxorubicin, and that can affect the heart function. So you want to make sure that that's not a contributor. You haven't picked up some other complication of therapy along the way. Um, and then lastly, just, you know, it's important to get up and get out and do things if, if you can, if you have the energy to do them. It's important to, to eat well during your therapy, to make sure that you're not falling behind in your nutritional needs because these, the chemotherapy is hard on your system even when we go down on the doses and we try to make it more manageable, but it's important to try to stay ahead of the curve if possible. So I do often have patients who uh, need medicine to help them with their appetite if they're not getting good good amount of calories in. Um, they may not have everyday nausea. That's not usually the case during maintenance, but they may have a limited uh, uh, appetite to take food in, except for the days that they're taking prednisone, where usually they've got a ravenous appetite. Um, so you want to make sure that you're actually getting up, eating, getting out, doing stuff regularly, getting back into the swing of things if you can. And again, to go back to a point I made in the prepared talk, um, if something just doesn't seem right, go to your care team because there could be another cause for this that isn't just the maintenance chemotherapy. And you want to make sure that that's been excluded, whether it's a drug side effect, whether it's not uh, an infection or some other thing going on. Uh, use that resource if you can. Thank you. Thank you very much. Dr. Tippis, do you want to add anything to that? Because that's such a common issue that comes up fatigue in all of our calls, actually. So just anything? No, no. Ex excellent explanation. Okay. And, um, you know, I would agree with everything. Okay, excellent. Okay. Um, and we have now a question for Dr. Tebus. Um, so um, would a bone marrow transplant make sense for a 68-year-old man? In what cases would it be recommended? So, again, that would be a question to answer in a general way um, and how people might address that with their healthcare team. Um, your thoughts, Dr. Tebus? Yeah, that's, that's a very good question. Um, and... And generally, um, as was mentioned earlier, <clears throat> we would still refer most patients at least for an evaluation and consideration for a stem cell or bone marrow transplantation. That also depends on the cytogenetics. It's not just the cytogenetics because, you know, some of my colleagues and some of my transplant colleagues say we should try to transplant most of the you know, adults and older adults um, with ALL, we should transplant them because the responses are the responses are not lasting that long as they're lasting with pediatric population and the younger adults. So I would, for sure, um, have a stem cell or bone marrow transplant consultation. And there are factors is, you know, are you fit enough? Do you can handle the procedure? And the physicians will do some tests, lung pulmonary function tests, lung function tests, heart function tests, and so forth. Um, is there a good social support system? Because a transplant can be a curative uh, treatment, so it can be great, but it comes at a price. So um, patient needs to come to the clinic. What happens if they get sick? There needs to be caregiver. So a good um, um, uh, social environment and support system is very important for that as well. And the disease also needs to be in remission. 
So we can't transplant a patient with a you know active ongoing leukemia. So we do need to push the leukemia into remission or almost close to undetectable levels. Again, and that's where some of those treatment uh, come into play. And then it's also the personal preference and the goal of the patient. You know, I'm 68. Yes, you know, if you say um, I want to go for the maximum treatment and I want to have the potential of being cured, and I'm not going to mention numbers because it depends on the your disease, your disease type, the treatment, how long it took to get you in remission, and so forth. And um, so I think it's really a very individual decision, but um, you should get a consultation or at least an opinion regarding that uh, treatment. And some patients say I'm 68. You know, achieved a remission. I'm taking the risk that it may come back in two or three years, but I don't want to spend the next six months in the hospital. So I think everybody's different here. Excellent points. That's excellent. And um, and um, a question, another question related to this uh, for Dr. Um, uh, Pearl. Um, the question is: um, Are bone marrow transplants from non-family members very risky? My husband's family provides no matches, but there are matching donors available. How do we decide if we should go forward with the transplant? And again, more general information about this as opposed to specifics that everyone should consider. Let me make sure I understand the question. So uh, a bone marrow donor who's an unrelated donor but matches the patient? Yes. Okay, yeah. So an unrelated donor transplant, uh, in terms of the transplant success, we we have to assume a few things. First off, we have to assume, really to echo what what Dr. Tiva said before, that the transplant's the right next step. But how well matched the donors are is an important part of kind of making that assessment. And then this can be a really tricky question for any transplanter. But in the right patient, a well-matched unrelated donor can get equivalent uh, survival benefits as a family donor who's fully matched. Um, There is a slightly higher risk of certain transplant complications and sometimes actually a substantially higher risk of what's called graft-versus-host disease. But with well-matched unrelated donors, whether that translates into a change in the survival, meaning the mortality risk for the transplant, is actually hard to show. Um, So transplants have gotten safer, but that doesn't mean that we've eliminated all side effects from them. So people can develop graft-versus-host disease that may not be life-threatening, but it's still something that can be disabling. So it's more a question of, is this better than the alternatives? And that's a very individualized question. Um, So to to echo the previous uh, uh, answer, uh, for the right patient with the right donor in the right circumstance, meaning the right treatment response, bone marrow transplant is an excellent treatment option. Um, but you have to make sure that everything lines up. And we use unrelated donor uh, for ALL all the time. That is a standard approach and recommendation that we have for many of our patients. We're confident that it gives acceptable results, and in some cases there are at least as well matched, uh, as good as what we can get from a sibling. Um, but that's mostly using uh, survival, long-term survival, as our measure. Um, the, the complication rate is generally a little bit higher with an unrelated donor transplant, largely in terms of the risk of what's called graft-versus-host disease, and that can also be associated with infection risk because the treatment for graft-versus-host disease is immunosuppression, which puts you at higher risk for infections. So both of those things are a higher risk when you look at unrelated donor transplants. But in terms of curability, there's, there's really not a difference between those two. Excellent. Well, I, I actually want to thank our speakers. You've both been terrific and just wonderful speakers. Uh, Dr. Pearl, Dr. Tinnitus, just outstanding and um, and really a great program, I have to say. And, I, and so we all thank our speakers. I also want to thank all of you who queued up and asked questions online. 
the questions have enhanced the program, and we hope that it's given you all more information to take back to treating healthcare team. That's really important, of course. Um, and and any question that you've asked during the program, you want to actually, have, I think all of our speakers have said that, take it back to your treating healthcare team, the information you've learned. And even if it wasn't your question, but you did hear uh, the question, you thought, oh, how does that apply to me? Again, you can go back to your healthcare team and, and ask those questions again. It's always good to do that. I think you have absolute permission from our speakers to do that. It's really important. Uh, so they have all your, maybe your physicians, your own healthcare team have all of your records and know the most about you. Um, as we are about to conclude the program, I would not want feel, anyone to feel they're alone in coping with ALL or any type of hematologic cancer or cancer in general. And I want you to now know that you're part of a very huge uh, community of support. We did talk about cancer care services, but I also want to be sure to uh, acknowledge many of our organizations on this call who offer you a number of services. Um, so many of questions, some of the questions that had to do with uh, uh, the bone marrow transplantation is something called Be the Match, and you'll be getting all those resources. When you get your evaluation at the end of the program, you'll be getting all the resources that you might want to access. There also is, of course, um, although we have a copay foundation, the Leukemia Lymphoma Society also has an outstanding uh, copay foundation that also is a resource to all of you. So you'll be getting that as a resource because these are important resources for you all to have. Uh, definitely you want to have those resources um, to be able to call. Um, you want to call as many places as possible when you're looking for help or any type of publications or information. That's really important. Um, our goal is to connect you as much as possible with not just our own services, but all the other services that exist out there for you. Um, and um, so I just uh, I also, for those of you who still have questions, and I know you still do, and you will have them uh, tomorrow and the next weeks and uh, months ahead, your healthcare team is always the best place to start. But then also, we always recommend, of course, that you call um, if you want to get a, a really um, excellent um, um, a resource, we want you to be sure to go to websites that are very credible, is the National Cancer Institute. Um, they um, have a, a, it's a, an 800 number, 800-422-6237. Um, and they also have um, just an amazing website, www.cancer.gov. And that website also has a live chat feature. So if it's in the U.S. or internationally, you can post your question, and one of the information specialists will address your question. Um, in addition, all of the resources I've mentioned and that are on your on the brochure and the and for those of you who register online, um, those all those hyperlinks to those organizations, many of them can be incredibly helpful to you in getting information and valuable information for you to be able to um, get your questions answered um, in addition. But always go back to your healthcare team with any piece of information you learn. We don't want you to go out and kind of, you know, think that that applies to you because they actually know how each thing applies to you know, each of your situations. So again, I want to thank you all for your participation on today's program. And I also want to mention that Cancer Care has just um, inaugurated a meditation app. It's on our website. Many people like it. It, um, it gives you a chance to have a free access to a relaxation exercises and just um, things that might help you to just de-stress a bit. So I would say if, you would, if you're interested in, in meditation or in relaxation techniques, you can um, get them from that app if you like apps and are using them. So with that all being said, I want to thank you all for your participation, and I want to look forward to your participating in some of our other programs. So thank you all, and you take good care. Bye-bye. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.